Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring and thought-provoking dialogue. For this inaugural episode of Extra Time, I'm excited to be joined by Richard Sloggett. Richard is a senior fellow and the health and social care lead at the Think Tank Policy Exchange based in London, and formerly special advisor to the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, the Right Honourable Matt Hancock. Whilst in government, he worked across public health, the NHS and social care priority policy areas. I'm sure we can get into some of those as we start the podcast. Recently, he was named as one of the 100 most influential people in healthcare policy by the Health Service Journal, the the HSJ. Another well-deserved award in your policy career, Richard. Delighted to have you on Extra Time. Adam, thank you. Great to be here. So let's let's kick off, Richard, with um, with helping our listeners understand a little bit more about the the health policy landscape. Who are the stakeholders? Who are the major bodies? How do they interact with each other? And what are the the key topics of conversation today? So, I mean, you can't really sort of answer this question without starting with the pandemic response, um, which has clearly overwhelmed um, many parts of government and the NHS, and which we will be living with the repercussions of for uh, many, many years. Uh, and indeed, whether you're looking at the, you know, Whitehall to number 10, Treasury, Department of Health, or you're looking at NHS and health service bodies, all of those are very much focused on how you get the health service back on its feet, uh, and also how you manage any potential uh, second wave. As we sit here at the end of, towards the end of July, uh, there's a lot of planning around what a second wave could mean. So um, the real focus is on that that pandemic response. But there's also these these two interesting sort of healthcare agendas, I call them in government at the moment. There's the NHS long-term plan agenda, which was obviously published in January 2019 under the previous administration led by Theresa May. Uh, that was the NHS's own plan built from the bottom up with local clinicians, patient groups and others involved, setting out a long-term trajectory for service transformation uh, and how it would spend the money that government had given it. Uh, And then you have a more, what I would say is more of an assertive political healthcare policy agenda, which came into force when Boris Johnson took over uh, as Prime Minister, which, which is just over a year ago. Um, And that involves these very high profile headline commitments that we've seen at the December election. So whether that's 50,000 more nurses, 40 new hospitals, 50 million GP appointments. Uh, And what I would say is that these two agendas, these um, this political agenda and this NHS agenda have sort of coexisted. Um, But there is a really, really interesting sort of interplay now about how we move forward. I think the government is very keen to return to that election agenda and make sure it delivers on those what it calls people's priorities. But how those people's priorities connect to that NHS long term plan um, has not yet been clearly spelt out. And as we move into 
a autumn where there is a comprehensive spending review, a multi-year government funding settlement, uh, how that sh those two agendas interact and uh, coalesce or clash is, I think, the really interesting thing that's coming over the horizon. And then when you throw in the, the pandemic response and second wave and you've got the end of the Brexit transition process, uh, you've got a real sort of knotty set of issues coming together, which I think uh, will be very much uh, keeping policymakers very busy in the weeks and months ahead. I mean, certainly over the last um, couple of months, um, as we've all been in lockdown throughout the, the period of the pandemic, there has been an increased interest, I've found, from the public in both healthcare service delivery, but also the policy that, um, that, that underpins that. And I think um, you've captured well that shift in focus. But how do you anticipate that policymakers and service deliverers are going to work their way through this this set of knotty issues as you've described so I think from an NHS perspective, I think we're seeing a much more of a move to regionally led um, systems. Um, so whether that's in the cancer space through cancer alliances or whether it's the emergence of integrated care systems and regionally led recovery teams, uh, that's primarily driven out of necessity. So if you look at a regional level, um, you've got a lot more um, scope on capacity to look across a wider geography to see how you can maximise the throughput of services. And as we as we sit here as I say at the end of July, this backlog of care that we've that, that that has sort of built up through the pandemic and needs to be looked at is far better done on that regional level rather than at the more micro sort of local level. So from an NHS perspective and how the service is designed, that that move to systems is I think is I think very very important. And then at a government level, I think I think one of the things that keeps coming back is of all of the priorities that um, the the Johnson administration made to the public during the election. The, the healthcare ones are the ones that are the ones that are most oft repeated in special advisor weekly meetings uh, and in indeed by the Prime Minister himself. Um, and they are very much front of mind. And what the government is really looking for from its health service system is how can it get those priorities for healthcare translated through the structures that exist so that in five years' time it can point back to those voters who voted Conservative in many cases for the first time to say you entrusted us to deliver this agenda and we have delivered those new hospitals those more nurses and those more those more gp appointments and and the really interesting thing adam i think is does the government have confidence in the nhs structures and systems as they are designed to deliver on that agenda or not and if it doesn't what might that mean for structural and legislative changes? And you're starting to see some of this, some of this bubble away. Um, and, and indeed, as, as I sort of stated earlier, when you throw in the challenges around the pandemic response and what that means for the way services are structured and designed, you've got a very, very difficult set of issues um, to work through. What I what I have seen is there is a, a real desire within Whitehall to kind of try and join up the different bits of government so that they are on the same page when trying to work through some of these um, these agendas and you're seeing a Whitehall task force now uh, that's been put in place including different members of, of government departments um, in the run-up to the spending review so that there's a sort of more strategic approach to the health service um, is spending in the next three or four three or four years so so from a health service perspective I think we're, it's a move towards systems which is which has been happening over many years but has been accelerated by the pandemic and then the government is trying to join up the different bits of government and then looking at the system to see if it can drive through that agenda over the next four years which is made such headline promises on and of course you know one of those one of those headline promises richard that you were involved in um in drafting whilst working as special advisor to matt hancock was um was the green paper around prevention is better than 
than cure, very lofty uh, ambitions, certainly as a as an operator who works in early detection of, of disease, we were delighted to see an ambition by the back end of the decade to diagnose over 75% of, of cancers at stage one and two. Given the, the, the recent hiatus and, and, and focus on the, on the pandemic response, do you think we're still able to meet those ambitions? And, and, and what challenges might the, the NHS face as we strive to achieve that lofty goal? So I think that the ambitions are still deliverable, um, but clearly the pandemic has maybe put some challenges around the timelines over which they will be able to be delivered. I think with the Prevention Green Paper, I mean, we've just passed the anniversary of the year of publication. And I think there's a real there's a real need, I think, for the government to start to come forward with some of the practical uh, approaches they're going to take to implement some of the agenda within it. Some of that has started to happen already, um, but the paper was quite ambitious, as you say, on, on two angles really one on population health level approaches what I often refer to as more traditional public health measures and indeed we may see some of these coming through on obesity where there may be some announcements next week around restrictions on junk food advertising for example and then you've got this I think really exciting um, prevention agenda which is utilizing the uh, benefits of new technology and innovation to drive what's much more personalized and targeted prevention models which obviously lead to sort of transformation the way services are delivered and how pathways are are configured um, and I think there is almost a need with the pandemic to really sort of double down on some of those, because if you can get that, in, that introduction of those new technologies uh, and new solutions right, you can really free up the service capacity and clear some of that backlog that we talked about a lot more quickly. And then you can get back to those ambitious targets and get back on track on those a lot, a lot, a lot more quickly. I mean, on cancer, the big concern was two I think big concerns one is how many cancers have we missed or we're going to be diagnosing later as a result of the pandemic response and the second is confidence amongst patients to re-enter service pathways and to re-enter services uh, where you can see that there is a lot of nervousness about people accessing um, healthcare services uh, physically uh, and particularly if they are in more vulnerable more vulnerable groups so I think there is a real opportunity for the government to now kick on with this agenda on prevention I think we will see something on obesity next in the next few days and I think it's it's an exciting time to be in in this space and innovation has a huge role to play. I mean, population and um, level initiatives driven by central government policy of course are notoriously difficult to implement. Um, a very good example in recent months has been the lung health check programs um, which have attempted to, um, to detect um, lung cancers earlier in our community. And whilst pilots at this point in time and will be evaluated over the next couple of years, they are not without their challenge and difficulty in implementation. What do you think industry can be doing um, to, to better facilitate the, the rollout of these excellent initiatives that have been driven out of central government policy? I think the key challenge for the in, for any industry engagement has to has to have an appreciation of the challenges that the system is trying to solve and how the system is structured and then what is actually deliverable and achievable within those two sets of priorities and structural and structural design and having when I've been in government one of the things that always struck me was that many people would 
sort of make representations, many of them very worthy and with indeed evidence and, and but they wouldn't necessarily have that appreciation and insight and understanding of what um, government and NHS policymakers were really, really grappling with. So it's trying to make that connection and connectivity between um, those central policymakers and your own product or service and then trying to weave them together. I do think there is I think one of the real positive things of the pandemic has been the degree of flexibility and pace of change that we've seen across services. And I think there's got to be a real need now to try and lock some of that in as we as we move forward. What are the lessons that we learn? What bureaucracy have we moved out of the way that doesn't need to come back? Uh, and the other thing is moving away from this uh, th this approach that we often take, which is a bit pilotitis in the NHS. And what I mean by that is we pilot something in one area and then it takes ages to report. report and by the time it comes to report, the, the agenda's moved on. We need to be much more nimble and flexible in the models that we take. Multi-year studies are often, of course, needed and, of course, welcome. But alongside that, there needs to be much more flex in the system. And I hope that for following the pandemic, there is a greater sort of recognition of that, given all of the successes we've seen uh, in making those service changes. Uh, so it's a bit of a blend, really. But that appreciation between your service and offer and the system's challenges is, is a really important connection that needs to be made. The, the, the pandemic sort of brought into stark focus, hasn't it, some of the inequalities within our, our society that, of course, have always been there, but not always um, apparent as we go about our, our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. We know that the social determinants of health outcomes are as important, if not more important, than some of the health determinants, um, all of which needs to be managed by the, the health and social care provision that we have within the NHS. What practical steps do you think that the system and its various different stakeholders could be taking to overcome some of those inequalities in access and also treatment um, of, of care across the UK? Yeah, and I think this is a really, really good question because um, you're absolutely right. The, the pandemic has highlighted the regional uh, inequalities in healthcare, and indeed, which are well known, but it's really brought these to the fore. And you're right, healthcare systems themselves only um, add about, only contribute 20 to 25% of overall health outcomes. It's a far wider agenda. Uh, the challenge with having anything on health inequalities is that it's almost too big for government, but government's the only one that can solve it. Uh, and what I mean by that is it falls into numerous different buckets and numerous different government departments. So one of the things that government's not particularly good at is joining up the different sort of workings of government uh, and then working through national, regional and local structures to kind of have a joined up um, multi-agency approach. It's, it's not easy, it's not easy uh, and it is very, 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 very complicated. I think you can't get away from funding in this conversation. And I think as we move towards the spending review in the autumn, there's a real opportunity for the government to revisit the public health grant and the public health funding, which has been significantly restricted in, in recent in recent years. And I think the pandemic has exposed that as a mistake. And I think it's time to relook at that in a sort of really new and energetic way about how public health grants and public health funding and local public health teams can be supported to really drive uh, bottom up improvements, as well as then using national levers through things like implementing the Prevention Green Paper uh, to really drive um, new new policy and new initiatives. I think um, also on, on public health, I think there's a real opportunity to use um, some of the work that's been done during the pandemic. And we're moving towards these integrated care systems and care models. There's a much greater opportunity there to try and 
bring different bits of the healthcare system, not just the NHS, but those other agencies um, alongside the healthcare system to work out a more holistic uh, approach at a regional uh, a regional level so you can do things uh, and introduce new things at scale. One of the biggest challenges, I think, of the NHS is getting anything into it. It often happens at a too micro level, and then you've got to go around multiple bodies and multiple agencies, which is very, very difficult. So, yeah, there's an opportunity through the, through the development of integrated care systems and some of the pandemic response, which has been multi-agency and multifaceted, to lock in cultural and operational workings, which I think could be really positive for national public health. The, the pandemic and certainly the media's um, reporting of the pandemic has often been incredibly negative. But um, I certainly see in the work that, that I do um, real examples of positive uh, healthcare improvement. As you go about your day to day, what exemplars of um, real positive um, health improvements are you coming across and, and, and what enthusiasm does that give you for the future of healthcare in the UK? So I think there's a there's two, a couple of things on this question. One is I think you're right. Some of the reporting has been very difficult, and some of the you know response has been challenging. But I think if you look at things like if you take workforce for example, which I think of all the issues the AE Health Service faces long term and immediately, it is challenges around workforce. It went into this pandemic with not enough staff and you've now got staff who've been working flat out. You've got problems around burnout, mental health challenges. And there's also a global race for healthcare staff as well. There's not enough you know, health and social care workers globally. It's been well documented that we're going to be several million short globally. And where do they go and what, how do you structure an immigration system to let them in? And there's a whole range of poli- really again, knotty policy issues to, to, to work through there. But What's been, I think, most positive has been actually seeing uh, retired or ex-staff return and really sort of put their sort of lean in and really, you know, contribute in in this national effort. Um, and it's been really, really positive to see that. Um, and it's it's made such a difference from speaking to those uh, locally, um, having that additional resource. I think the second thing that's been really positive is is this sort of migration to genuine technological transformation and uh, engagement. Um, and I think that is one of the really positive things that we need to evaluate and learn from and lock in as we as we move as we move forward. The NHS should really be a beacon for for innovation, and too often it's unfortunately there are too many constraints on getting that innovation in quickly and scaling it. I think. That has not been a problem during this pandemic and there are reasons for that which aren't necessarily sustainable particularly you know an open funding envelope isn't going to exist forever i don't think the treasury will allow it but at the same time i think ways of working collaboration scaling there are some good learnings that we can take which which we need to lock in so there's two things on workforce and tech i think are really 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 positive yeah i agree it's been really heartening to see people throw their weight um behind supporting our, our very large universal healthcare system. And, and you're right, some of the um, technological advancements that the system has made um, are maybe, maybe leaping five or 10 years ahead of where the system would have been without having to respond, unfortunately, to, to the pandemic. A final one from me is one of those areas that have received a huge amount of interest and focus over um, the last five months has been, been diagnostics. The role of diagnostics, I think, both in the minds of clinicians, policymakers, health service operators, but also the public has, um, for the first time in my memory, been a, a point of discussion, debate and, uh, and, and, and conversation. But of course, we all too often have heard 
the fact that there has been a less investment or um, not enough investment in um, the diagnostic industry within the UK to mount an effective response against a pandemic um, such as this. What ambitions do you have for, for building out um, the diagnostics industry and its support to um, the NHS in the UK over the coming years? So I think if you look at if if you try and see the one of the sort of positives that can come from this very difficult situation, it, it has to be investment in healthcare. Now that's not just investment in the NHS, but it's also investment in industries that can support a response to something like this in the future, and indeed can just drive our next phase of economic growth. And I think the government is obviously focused on um, Brexit trade talks and trade talks with other markets and is looking at how the UK can become a sort of beacon of international trade and um, sort of future uh, investment opportunities. And I think healthcare is a great one. The NHS is a fantastic brand and a fantastic service that can actually really globally lead in a number of different areas number of different areas whether it's on training training packages workforce technology and how you start to see healthcare not as a cost as a policymaker through the prism of NHS spend but also as as a sort of value additive um, through an industry and an economy and a regional growth strategy is I think something that hasn't yet quite sort of fed through into the different those different workings of government and I think healthcare and the diagnostics industry can play a really important role in positioning the UK as a global leader in this particular industry and what a great time to be a global leader in healthcare when the biggest issue that the world faces is a healthcare issue and indeed even when the pandemic you know is, is behind us global healthcare issues are are going to be so so important so being a leader in this in this place is, is very very important and then how you structure a policy set of levers around incent incentives uh, and and a range of other sort of issues is going to be really really fascinating for government policymakers to work through so i think it's an exciting time to be in healthcare i really do and um, the uk diagnostics industry has got a great platform to really push on um, and to, uh, be a real success in the years to come Quite right, quite right. And with 70% of clinical decisions being made off the back of a diagnostic test um, in the NHS, the, the future is certainly bright for the UK's diagnostic industry. Richard, our, our final question that we ask everyone set in your seat is, um, is, is if you could choose three people to sit where you are, <laughs> where you are now and, um, and, and face the barrage of questions you've just undertaken, who may they be and what questions might you ask them? So I think it's I'm quite interested I'm quite interested in the global sort of perspectives on some of this given the nature of the pandemic. So I would invite three sort of global healthcare leaders really. One is I'd I'd invite um, Tedros from the WHO um, and ask him lots of questions around the sort of the WHO's response. Taken a lot of criticism and has been quite defensive on some of that, and it'd be interesting to sort of unpack that. Um, I'd also ask John Bell to come and talk about this sort of life science hub, global leadership. Where next with the life science strategy? Um, what Brexit means for all of this, um, and you know how you sort of build on the better bits of the pandemic response through, as you say, the diagnostics piece and you know the engagement with the industry. Uh, and then the third person I would ask, um, who I think would be very entertaining and also brilliant, would be um, Dame Sally Davies, and um, I would I would quiz her on two bits. One, I'd choose the um, antimicrobial resistant czar 
Um, and I think there's a huge agenda there that the UK is again trying to play a leadership role in. But also on this issue of obesity, she's um, she published a report before she left as chief medical officer, a very sort of punchy report. And it'd be interesting to get her views on what the government does come forward with uh, on that obesity agenda. So three sort of very high profile, global leading healthcare figures uh, for you, Adam. Excellent. Well, you have been warned, Dame Sally, Sir John, Tedros, your invite is in the post. <laughs> uh, well, look, if we can get you on the show. Richard, thank you very much for your time. You've been an absolute gentleman and, um, and you've helped me certainly navigate um, the health policy landscape in, uh, in the UK. Um, many thanks for your help. Thank you, Adam. Great to have been on.